tonight in your Bible to the book of Romans. And if you need a Bible so that you can follow along with us, if you just lift up your hand, the ushers are making their way right now so that you can uh, follow along with us. If you're new here, if you're not new here, I hope you've learned by now that you never know when I might call for like a show of Bibles and you don't want to think good idea to bring your Bible. I remember I heard Joe Foch say one time, he said, look, you know, there's thousands of people there. He's like, we don't care how you dress. I don't care if you, you know, you wear a tank top or flip flops or what you do, but you better bring your Bible. That one thing we care about. And, you know, we echo that sentiment here. We want to follow along and let the word of God speak to us. So. Bring a Bible, bring a pen, mark it up, bring a notebook, come prepared to hear God's voice. So, Romans, and let's read together the first 15 verses and see what God might have for us. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers." making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and also to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for this treasure that we have at our disposal. Lord, for truly, if this letter was missing from our Bible, Lord, what a, what a different face our faith would have. And so, Father, we have such a privilege before us as we study this great treasure. Lord, please, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would open our understanding. Lord, that you would cause us to understand the depths and the riches of this grace that we've inherited freely purchased for us by your blood. And Lord, may we be changed forever. Lord, may there be freedom that would come into the lives and the hearts of us, Lord, as we study this and see what you've done. 
Lord, may there be liberty and the, the bondage of sin, the bondage of conviction or condemnation and guilt be broken. Lord, the fear of wrath and judgment, Lord, that that fear would be dissolved through the light of your love. We ask, Lord, that you would light a fire in our church. Lord, that as we study this, that we would be truly changed. That this would revolutionize our attitudes. That it would change our evangelism. And that it would strengthen our confidence in the great love that you've extended towards us. So fill us now, Lord, and prepare our hearts. Speak, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the Bible that we study has five different types of books, if you would, contained within it for us to look at. There are historical books. The first five books of Moses there in the Old Testament, and, and then continuing all the way through to the end of Second Chronicles, those are all historical books. They're, they're absolute, true accounts of something that took place historically that also give us instruction and insight into who God is, but they are historical in nature. The book of Acts that we just finished is also a historical book, the only such in the New Testament. So there are historical books and historical studies that we can look at as we study the Bible. There are also prophetical books, such as, you know, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, Jonah, and all the way up through Malachi, you have these prophets that would foretell future events, that would kind of see into spiritual things that couldn't be comprehended with the natural eye or the natural reasoning of man, and then recording them for us to gain insight into the heart of God and also to see what was coming on the timeline in God's plan and schedule. So there are prophetical books in the Bible. There are also poetical books, Job and Psalms. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, these books that are poetical in nature that kind of go beyond the, the surface of the, you, you know, the theological and, and although they embrace that and they reveal that, they go deeper and they kind of seek to wrap around the, the more esoteric and, you know, uh, emotional aspect of our worship. And understanding God in, in that way. And so those books, those poetical books in the Bible that we can look at and glean and gain insight into this God that we serve. There are also Gospels. We know what they are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The ministry and the life of Christ revealed to us to look into and handle the word of life and see firsthand who Jesus was and experience with them what he did. There are Gospels. And then there are, finally, doctrinal books of the Bible, such as the epistles that we have before us that we look at here. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Hebrews, Philemon, you know, and the Peters and Jude and 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, these letters that were written that their primary purpose is to explain doctrinal truths to us, elements of Christianity more technical in nature, so that we can understand what we believe, why we believe it, what we do, and why we do it. And so these doctrinal books of the Bible are placed here so that it can give understanding to our faith, kind of put something tangible to something that is otherwise intangible. 
an explanation to something that's invisible. Doctrinal books of the Bible. And that's what we have as we look into the book of Romans tonight. The book of Romans is the first of the doctrinal books in the Bible. It isn't the first of the letters that Paul wrote. It was probably one of the latter. Probably one of the later. But I believe that it's probably one of the most important. And for that reason, it's placed before us first here as we conclude our study of the book of Acts. Romans sets forth for us a technical explanation for what we believe as Christians. It exhaustively answers the question of what do we believe or what is Christianity? Now, the other epistles, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and so on down the line, the other doctrinal books, if you would, set forth for us instruction and explanation into various and specific areas of the Christian life. There's much to learn in the epistles about church life and home life and marriage and family and relationships and spiritual gifts and elements of ministry. I mean, you name it, everything that could affect us as Christians is touched upon and explained and taught on in the epistles. But Romans is unique because there's no other book in the Bible that sets forth to explain specifically and systematically the singular question of what is Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? For that reason, Romans has been called by some the Constitution of Christianity. By others, it's been called the Christian Manifesto. And although everything that we learn about in the book of Romans can be found or drawn from other parts of the Bible... It's only here in this book, in Romans, that that we have systematically, it is all pulled together and then plainly laid out for us to see and to understand. So much so that some have gone so far as saying that if you remove Romans from the Bible, it would change the face of Christianity as we know it. That it's one of the only books that if you take it out of the Bible, you would have a different gospel, a different message. And that's interesting to me. That's powerful to consider. In military circles and in intelligence communities, there is a unique method of protecting sensitive information when it's being communicated across insecure bandwidths. In other words, when a message needs to be sent, maybe during a war or maybe during some other critically important situation, and there is a danger of that message being corrupted or intercepted or partially deleted, then then the way that it is ensured that the message will be received is, is through a process that's called A-coding. And what they do is that they spread the message over a series of small transmissions over a period of time. And then once the messages, the transmissions are all received, they are then put together and then deciphered to extract the information. And the reason that why you do that is so that if one of those transmissions is intercepted or if maybe another one is added you know, in order to try to corrupt it, or if something is changed, then it won't affect the accuracy of the message. And so they do this in order to, you know, get this critical information across during critical times. Now, when God gave to us the Bible, which is a message of sensitive information critical to our survival, he employed a very similar technique. 
Did you ever notice that the Bible isn't systematically laid out where if you want to read about marriage, there's just a marriage section of the Bible? You just turn to look in the back and, oh, marriage, that's in, you know, this color. And you turn to it and then everything that it says about marriage is just laid out right there. Or end times studies, eschatology. Oh, we'll just turn to the eschatology section and we'll just read everything. Well, have you ever noticed that the Bible isn't laid out that way? No, if you want to understand what the Bible says about marriage, then you have to read Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Peter chapter 3, and, and you go through all of what the Bible says about it, Song of Songs and various scriptures in the Old Testament, and then you put it all together, and then you decipher and discern what biblical marriage is all about. That's the way God did it. Now, why did he do it? Because if it was the other way, where there was just a marriage section, what would happen if that section of the Bible was somehow removed, lost, or corrupted? Then we would not know what God's heart was concerning marriage. But if 1 Peter chapter 3 somehow gets corrupted, or intercepted, or taken out, or lost, then using the other sections that give to us insight on marriage, you can fill in what was lost in that one section that was corrupted or lost. And so God, understanding the sensitivity of this information and the critical nature of its importance to us as we seek to live as Christians in this world and successfully understand who God is, he put the Bible together in such a way that we would, even though maybe something would get lost or stolen or corrupted by our enemy, our strategic adversary, that we wouldn't lose the accuracy and the critical nature of the message itself. God knew that we had that enemy. Now, Romans is a systematic structuring of everything that the Bible teaches about salvation, redemption, grace, and the relationship that we have with God. And it's all put together for us here in one place and clearly explained to us so that we can understand it. And that is a great privilege. Because if Romans wasn't here, then for us to put together what we have laid out for us in this book would be an extremely difficult task. It could be done, but it would not be easy, and it would change the course of our walk with God. Now that alone makes, for me personally, this book, the book of Romans that we're starting a study of tonight, one of the most valuable and important books in the entire Bible. Godet that uh, you know, Swiss theologian said that the Reformation was certainly the work of the epistle to the Romans. That everything that we understand as that being the Protestant Reformation stemmed from, rooted from the understandings set forth in Romans. He said that it is probable that every great spiritual revival in the church will always be linked both in cause and effect to a deeper knowledge of this book. Martin Luther said that Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And there's so much truth in that. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said, said, or had it read to him twice each week. Coleridge said that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound writing that exists. And it's the epistle that transformed that Bedford tinker, John Bunyan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of my personal favorites. I think it's the most important book that any Christian could read aside from the Bible. And it was the book of Romans that brought him to the understanding of grace and who Christ was. It's one of the most important books in the Bible. 
When I first came to Christ, some of you have heard my testimony. And I was one who was one of the most critical people opposing God in, in so many ways, harshly. And I had tried to read the Bible from Genesis, and I had read the Gospels, and I had been brought up in a church that taught various portions of the Scripture. And this Bible was always obscure. It was always confusing. I could never understand why someone would give their life to something like the Bible. And when I finally gave my life to Christ, I said, forget Genesis and forget the Gospels. I'm just going to open it up to wherever it opens to, and I'm just going to read right where it is. And when I opened my Bible, it fell open to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And the first book as a Christian that I read was the book of Romans. And it was the first time I ever understood the Bible. And I can't tell you the things that happened in my life as I just, that, that for that one week that I was all alone, just reading through the book of Romans and understanding the grace of God, understanding the truths about redemption and salvation that he was laying in my life. It's a very important book. Who is God? What did he do? What did he want to do for me? And it was explained to me. And that is the study that we're beginning here tonight. The book of Romans answers for us the question, what is the gospel? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity? Now, the book of Romans is pregnant with truth. As the rumors were swirling of where we were going to go as we finished the book of Acts, and Romans was kind of one of those books that was kind of tossed up in the thing, I was given comments by many of you that said, Ooh, Romans is risky. Are you sure you want to go into Romans? There's a lot of controversy and there's doctrinal debates and things that in Romans might cause, you know, things. And, and, and it's true that Romans is pregnant with truth. And if we wanted to, we could literally spend 10 years studying the book of Romans without being redundant. It's been done. I forgot their names. I was really trying to remember. But there was one church that spent eight years in the book of Romans. And there was another pastor that took 14 years to take his people through the book of Romans. And there was a commentator that wrote a four-volume set just on the book of Romans. Four, you know, huge, thick books, just as one commentary on the book of Romans. There's so much for us to look at and to glean and to understand. But my desire for wanting to go through this, and what I want you to see as we study and go through this book is that really there is only one thought or one theme that Paul is seeking to communicate throughout the first 12 chapters of this book. And that is the answer to the question, what is the gospel? That's Paul's agenda. That's Paul's theme. That's Paul's motive. That's why Paul wrote, because he wanted them to understand the gospel. Now, because of how big and how vast and how wide and how deep this gospel is. You can't give a simple study of the gospel without also giving a lot more to look into. And that's why there's so much to look at in Romans. But my desire, my agenda, is to take you through this relatively quickly. I use that word relatively because you know me. <laughs> I'll do my best. But if this were the game show Jeopardy, and you were that contestant there, and you chose, and you said, I'll take the Bible for 800. And there, the answer comes up on the screen, and the answer is the book of Romans. You would chime in, and you would say, what is the definition of the gospel? 
That would be the proper thing. Because that's what the book of Romans is. It answers the question, what is the gospel? Now tonight, we'll take the first 15 verses by way of introduction. And the next week, we'll begin in verse 16 on our walk down this corridor that is Christianity. And as we examine the richness of this gospel that God freely extends to us, will be changed. I know that God is going to do great things in our hearts, in our lives as we look at it. So as we look at verse 1 here and we see Paul's introduction to them, there's three things for us to notice. First of all, the author. Secondly, the agenda. And third, the audience. First of all, the author in verse 1, Paul identifying himself says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and separated unto the gospel of God. Now we know who Paul is. We just finished a study of the book of Acts. We've become very familiar with this man. We understand his conversion. We saw how God apprehended him, met him there on the road to Damascus, and turned his course, changed his direction. We're familiar with his convictions and the way that he conducted himself and lived his life. And we understand his calling, the thing that God gave him to do, and how he would go from place to place, ministering and giving away the things that had freely been given to him. We've seen his passion, that the man was unstoppable, that you could stone him, but if you didn't make sure he was dead, then he would get up and go back into the city and continue on the thing that he was doing, that his passion was large, he was consumed with Christ. We've seen his persistence that nothing would stop him and get him down. We're told of the many beatings that he endured, the times that he was shipwrecked and lost at sea, all of the things that were afflictions to him, trials and troubles, even at one point where he said that he despaired even of life so that he just wanted to die. And yet nothing could stop this man from pursuing his course of serving God and giving away this gospel. And we've seen his pursuit as he says, he says, he implores the Philippians and he says, this one thing I do, I forget the things which are behind and I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That the one thing that he wanted in his life more than anything else was to know Jesus more. That he would trade everything that he had, everything that he had gained to that point, just to have more of Christ in his life. That that was his pursuit above all other things. And he was a man that pursued it all the way to his last day. But there are three words that he uses here to describe himself as he addresses the Roman church by way of introduction. The first thing he says is that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in Paul's time, that could mean one of three things. There were three meanings for servant. One would be an indentured servant. Someone who was just an employee, who lent themselves out for hire, that they would work for wages, and they would serve their employer for something that they would gain in return. A job, if you would. That's not what Paul's speaking about here, as he calls himself a servant of Christ. He wasn't simply working for wages as he served Jesus. The second meaning of servant in Paul's day would be that of a slave. Someone who perhaps couldn't pay off a debt that they owed. And so there was an obligation and they were bound by ownership and obligation to an owner because of something, a business deal perhaps that didn't go right and they owed a certain amount of service to the boss. And so they were required, they were constrained, they were a slave, they were chained, they had no choice. 
That's not what Paul's talking about either. And the third meaning of servant in Paul's day is a bondservant. And and that is someone who was a slave, that perhaps there was some bondage, some reason, some obligation that they had to a person. But then, once that obligation was met, once that debt was paid off, then that servant looked at the master and he said, I'm happy here. I like the service that I, that I provide here. I like the life that I've been given in this servanthood. I like the conditions and I like, I, I like serving this master. And so I will choose of my own free will to serve this master for the rest of my life because I'm happy serving him. It was a law that was given in Exodus chapter 21 concerning the bondservant in the day when he is set free. And Jesus, through the redemption that came through his blood, purchased us from slavery, and he gives us the choice of freedom. He says, I have purchased you to set you free. And now we, as his people, have the choice to say, I will choose to serve you. I will be a bond slave. I will serve you willingly because I love you. And that is the word that Paul uses here as he describes himself to these people, calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ. One who willingly serves because of the goodness that's been shown and extended to him. A bondservant. And Paul calls himself a bondservant as he addresses the Romans, or if you would, a slave by choice. His freedom had been paid for, but he loved his master and he wanted to serve him. Do you know that God doesn't force anybody to serve him? That nobody has to fulfill an obligation of service to God. You wouldn't think that as, you know, if you go to most churches and the first question that you're asked with is, well, what do you do? Do you cut grass? Do you wash dishes? Do you change diapers? How good are you with kids? And the feeling that you would get as you go into most churches is, well, God needs servants and you owe God something, so you better step up and get involved and do something. That's not the kind of service that God wants. He's not looking for people that feel constrained that under the heavy hand of a condemning God would require service of his subjects. But rather, God is looking for those that would willingly say, after all that he's done for me, I want to serve him with my life. And in any capacity that I could be of any use or bear any fruit or bring glory to his name, then I'm willing and desiring to do that for him. That was Paul. God doesn't force anyone to serve him, to do time for him. But when God gets a hold of a life, when someone truly understands, when they have a pure vision of who he is and what he's done, when they've experienced his love, when they've tasted the blessing of his power and his presence within their lives, and they've seen him working in and through their lives to touch and to bless others, then the only thing that a person like that can say is just like David, is that I would rather spend one day in your courts than a thousand somewhere else. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That was the desire that Paul had. That was the servanthood. That was the heart of this man, Paul, in this uh, servanthood that he gave him. The first thing that Paul did before anything else happened in his life is that he yielded himself as a servant to God. Before he was an apostle, before he was a church planter, before he was a pastor, before he was a miracle worker or a healer or a teacher, before he was anything else, 
He was a servant. He wanted to serve God because of the great grace that God had extended towards him. But after that, after Paul identifying himself as a servant, he says, called to be an apostle. That that God didn't leave him there in that place of just being that willing servant, but that God had something for him. God had something great for him. God had a privilege, a high calling to be placed upon this man's life. And as Paul yielded himself as, as a servant to Christ for the goodness that had been shown to him, God then revealed the calling to Paul that he had on his life, that he was called to be an apostle. It isn't until after a person has yielded themselves as a servant to Jesus Christ that they can then begin to discover their calling. God has put a gifting and a calling on every single person that he saves. Did you know that? Did you know that if you're sitting here tonight and you are one that has accepted Christ, that you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins and to secure your place in eternity, if he hasn't taken you to heaven yet, then that means that there is a gifting on your life and a calling on your life. There is something that God wants to do with you. And the Bible says that it is exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or even think. That you wouldn't be able to figure it out. And if you chose it, it would be less than what God's got for you. That's his will for all those that he chooses, that he calls. He has a gifting. But that gifting and that calling in your life It is never going to be miraculously manifested in a moment. It's not going to happen that you're just going to be having a dream one night and God's going to show up and he's going to be like, look, I'm going to send you and you're going to lead millions to me and and heal thousands in my name. It's not going to happen that way. At least I've never met anybody that had happened that way. You're not going to discover it in that miraculous moment, but rather it's discovered and then cultivated through movement. Not miraculously manifested in a moment, but rather discovered and then cultivated through movement. How's that? Well, I didn't know that I was going to be a teacher. I had no idea. It didn't come that God just showed up at my bedside and said, Hey, Nick, this is my calling for you. Or one day I get a card in the mail and, Hey, it's from Jesus. And I open it up and he's like, Hey, this is your commission. This is what you're going to do. Got orders from, you know, the general kind of a thing. And that's what I'm called to do. So I better do it. It didn't happen that way. No, first thing is I just wanted to serve him. I had been touched. I had seen, I had understood, I had tasted of his grace and his goodness. And I just wanted to be serving him. I wanted to be where his people were. I wanted to be around the church. And and I just wanted to serve. And so I did whatever I could. Whether it was dusting off pews or cleaning toilets or vacuuming rugs or emptying the diaper containers, you know, the diaper genies, you know, into the dumpster. Anything I could do just so long as I could be there. I just wanted to be around the thing. And, And then it happened in the course of time as I was moving in a servant position, serving God with my strength that a door opened up for me to teach first a Sunday school class. And I was thrilled because I was so excited about the things that I was learning. I didn't care who I could share them with, whether they were 2 or 10 or 20. I just wanted to talk about the things that I was learning. And so I took that Sunday school class and I began to teach them just the things that I was learning. I couldn't understand much, but I could understand John's gospel. So I simply began taking those kids through John's gospel and showing them the things that I was learning. 
Well, then another door opened up for me to take on a role in teaching a small youth group, a parachurch organization, a chapter of Youth for Christ in my hometown. And so I began going there and seeing people begin to come and begin to get excited about the Word of God. And as that door closed, an opportunity came to lead a home Bible study, to actually teach people through books, much like what we're doing here in a home fellowship type setting. And so I was excited and I said, yeah, I'll do that. And as God began to work in that, then a door, another door opened up for me to teach in a, in a kind of a small kind of Bible school type of setting where people wanted to learn specific areas of the Christian faith. And I would be able to take them for 10 weeks at a time and teach them in these things. And through it all, God cultivated this gift. He cultivated this ability. He cultivated this passion and this, this desire to want to teach people the things, the truths about his kingdom. But it didn't happen in a moment. It happened as I was a servant, and then the calling came as I moved in this servanthood, and God began to build it and cultivate it and grow it. It was discovered and then developed through service. God did it. Now, Paul called to be a servant first. Then, given his calling as an apostle, as God begins to use his life, and then once he discovered his calling, the third thing that Paul says as he introduces himself to the Romans, he says, separated unto the gospel of God. Separated unto the gospel of God. He had yielded himself as a servant. He had discovered and cultivated his calling, and then God moved him into a position of ministry. He gave to him an outlet for steady service as Paul just continued walking and growing in his walk and his service towards the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul would write, and he would say that we, you and I, We are his workmanship. In the Greek language, it's the word poema, and it speaks of an art form or how a potter would mold a lump of clay. That we are his workmanship. He's building, he's growing, he's shaping something in us. And that we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That God has something that he wants to cultivate and shape and form and grow that concerns you that he calls a good work and a road that he's mapped out that you should walk in it to bring him glory and to bring him fame. God's will for your life is that there is a path of ministry laid out for you that you should yield yourself to discover, cultivate and prepare yourself for, And then give your life to fruitfully fulfilling that course. That's what God's will is for each one of you that's here tonight. That's what he wants for you. And in doing that, you'll find purpose in your life. You'll begin to discover what it is that you've been created for. You'll begin to operate and function to your fullest capacity in the way that God designed you for. You'll find that your life is effective and you'll find your eternal reward will be great as you give yourself to the plan that God has for your life. Now, in this separation that Paul speaks of concerning himself, he introduces to us the theme that he will be writing about. He says that he's separated unto the gospel of God. 
He's separated unto the gospel of God. Now, you know, and I know that the word gospel means good news. That's what it means. That Paul was appointed, he was chosen to be a herald, someone that would declare the good news of the salvation that God had purchased. Specifically, this gospel is the good news concerning God's plan of salvation. And as he introduces this theme, he tells us five very broad things concerning this good news plan that God has. He separated unto the gospel of God, and then he tells us five things about this gospel by way of introduction again, as we look at verse 2. He says, first of all, that this is not something that's new. This gospel... This plan, this salvation is not something new. It says that he had promised it beforehand by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's many people in the church today, in Christianity today, that stumble over the seemingly broad difference between what they would call the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever had that? thought flash across your mind as you're reading your Bible that, hey, it seems like there's a a big difference between the heart of God as you read the Old Testament and when you read the New Testament. And sometimes when people bring up that argument, we know what to say, but inside we kind of say, well, I, I see, I understand what you're saying. Because when you read the Old Testament, it kind of seems like sometimes that God is angry. I mean, he's, he's full of wrath and judgment sometimes. It's heavy. There's condemnation. There's punishment and judgment. And, and you read about all these things as you look at the Old Testament. And then you read the New Testament and you see Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. You have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye. But I say unto you, forgive. Do good to those that, that, that harm you, that speak evil of you. Bless those that persecute you. And it seems that there's somewhat of a contradiction between the two testaments, if you would. That the New Testament speaks of grace, it speaks of mercy, it speaks of forgiveness and love and acceptance. And so it seems that for some there's this contradiction between the old and the new. That perhaps some would say that this gospel is something new. This isn't something that's old, this is kind of plan B. Plan A, the Old Testament didn't work, so plan B is God's backup. No, there's no contradiction, none at all. But what we'll discover is that the very observation of that difference, the very thing that you're noticing when you see the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation versus the grace and the mercy and the acceptance, that that difference is the very essence of the gospel. That is the essence of the gospel. Why? Because the Old Testament is the law. It's where God gave to the people the righteous requirements of salvation. He said, do this and you shall live. And then he laid out for them not only the Ten Commandments that are impossible for us to keep, but 614 other laws, codes, dietary restrictions, you know, penal neighborhood laws, everything under the sun that you can imagine that God lays out. And he says that if you will be saved, then do these things. And the people agreed and they said, okay, we'll do it. But what they discovered quickly is that they didn't have the power to perform the thing that they promised. They couldn't keep the very law that was supposed to save them. Now, disobedience to the law results in the wrath, condemnation, and punishment of God. 
And therefore, the discovery throughout the Old Testament is what? That man can't keep the law. That on our best day, in our best moment, it's like that guy who, you know, he was praying. And as he prayed, he said to the Lord, Lord, I thank you so much that I haven't sinned today. I haven't lusted after anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't killed or been angry. I haven't cursed anyone. Lord, I haven't sinned at all today. But in a minute, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm really going to need your help. (laughs) Because it doesn't take long, does it? It doesn't. The law makes it perfectly clear that no man can keep the law. Now, the New Testament, in contrast to that, is the righteous God leaving his place in heaven and becoming a man. And then fulfilling himself the righteous requirements of the law, and then taking man's place in punishment, wrath, and judgment. That's what we read about in the life of Christ. God became a man. He fulfilled the law. He lived every day of his 33-year life in absolute obedience to the will of God. Never cursing. Never Stumbling, never murdering, never lusting, never in any way violating even the smallest letter, jot, or tittle of the law of God. A perfect life. And yet at the end, he took upon himself the judgment, the wrath, and the punishment that sin deserved. He took that punishment upon himself. Righteousness and mercy have kissed each other, the psalmist declared. The righteousness of the law demanded judgment. We needed mercy. Jesus purchased our mercy by taking the punishment of sin upon himself. That is the gospel. There's no contradiction, but rather it's a complementation and a revelation of what God intended to do from the very beginning. That's what Paul is saying here when he says that which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That that was God's intent from the beginning. To reveal to us, first of all, our need. To show us that we couldn't keep the righteous demands that the law placed upon us. And then that he would step in, fulfill it on our behalf, and then take the punishment that we deserved through our disobedience and our sin. That's what God did. That's the gospel. And the first mention of this plan is not in the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene, but rather the first mention of this plan is right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God spoke and he said that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now what is that? We know biologically that the woman isn't the one that provides the seed. It was speaking of a foreshadowing concerning the virgin birth. That the seed of the woman, that Christ would come and that he would bruise the head of the serpent. That there would be a Messiah, a substitute, someone that would come in and take the place of that judgment. It was mentioned right there in Genesis chapter 3. God, aforetime, mentioning what he would do before it could ever happen. In Genesis chapter 22, we don't have time to look into it, but read it on your own. And what you see there is God perfectly picturing, depicting for us exactingly what he would do by the Father, laying the wood upon the Son, 
and then offering him there as a sacrifice upon a specific mountain, Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary, a perfect picture of the cross right there in Genesis chapter 22. Read it. It will blow your mind. Exodus chapter 17, when the children of Israel went against the Amalekites, the sons of Amalek. And Moses was up on the hill with Joshua and Caleb, his assistants. And it tells us there that when Moses' hands were raised, the people would prevail. But when Moses' hands grew weary and fell, that then the people would begin to, you know, not do so well. They would begin to lose the battle. And so it tells us there that Joshua stood on one side and Caleb on the other, and they propped up Moses' arms so that they held them up so the children of Israel could prevail. But them, the fighters, the Israelites, God's people down in the valley battling, what was their strength? They would turn around and they would look up on the mountain and what would they see? They would see three men on a hill and the one in the middle would have his arms spread out. And it was their victory. It was their salvation. It was God speaking to the people of what he would accomplish on their behalf. There in the Old Testament, that which was spoken aforehand by the apostles and the prophets. In Leviticus, the lamb and the sacrificial system all speaking forward to what God would accomplish as Christ would hang on the cross. Psalm 22 gives to us a perfect description of what would take place in a person's physiological frame as crucifixion happened to them. As Jesus, the subject there, is talked above. Isaiah chapter 53, describing the scene and the ministry of what Christ would do. The prophets, speaking beforehand what Christ would accomplish. This gospel that God had planned and provided for from the foundation of the world. So that you and I could sit here saved tonight. Knowing Jesus redeemed. It's nothing new. And Paul brings that to their attention. He promised that before by the mouth, by the words of his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The next thing that he tells us concerning this gospel is that the whole thing is centered on and saturated with Jesus Christ. Verse 3. He says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There are some people that would be so bold as to say that it doesn't matter what you call him, just as long as you believe in God. It doesn't matter what his name is. Hey, if you're sincere and you try as hard as you can and you live by the golden rule, then you'll be fine. God will accept you. He'll see your faith and the name doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference what you call him. Well, I suggest and what the Bible teaches is that it does matter. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says to the Sanhedrin, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That the name of Jesus is the name that holds and bears authority before the throne of God, and it is the only name through which salvation can come. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus speaking to his disciples as they were confused, frustrated, and doubtful. He said, the way you know. And Philip looked at him and he said, how can we know the way? Where are you going? And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said these words. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Buddha, Confucius, Allah, Muhammad. Whatever you want to call me is fine. Just as long as you believe. No. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus declared emphatically as he looked at his disciples there around that table. In John chapter 10 verse 9, Jesus speaking to those that would oppose him, he said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. By who? By Jesus. Because it matters. In John chapter 5, verse 39, the scene is that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he had made himself equal with God. And Jesus came and he retorted and he said to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But he said, they are they which testify of me. All of the scripture, all of the prophecies, all of the pictures, all of the truth that's revealed from the beginning until now, it all speaks of me, Jesus said. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but at the name of Jesus Christ. And the gospel concerns Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Isn't it amazing how much less people are willing to use the name Jesus? There is more and more Christian music and less and less of the name Jesus inserted in the lyrics and lines that we hear. There are more and more new and useful Bible translations, but there is less and less of the name, the word Jesus inserted into the lines of that text. They will say Lord, they will say God, they will say Son, they will say anything, but they don't want to say Jesus because that name is offensive. But there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is God. When you say Jesus... It takes it to a new level, doesn't it? When you're sharing with someone, when you're talking about what God is doing in your life, when you bring the name Jesus into it, it changes the whole atmosphere of it. You can feel it. You can sense it. Because there's power in the name. It matters. It says concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel that we believe. The faith that we profess here tonight as Christians is centered on and saturated with Jesus Christ. Be bold, saints. Don't shy away from the name because there is no other name. And Paul says it's concerning his son, Jesus Christ. He goes on then to say that this gospel that he's about to explain to them is sealed and authentic and trustworthy. Look at verse 4. He says that this Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The declaration of the gospel's authority is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no other thing that proves this faith, that brings authenticity and genuine uh, you know, understanding of it than the resurrection. The Pharisees came to Jesus on another occasion, John chapter 12. And they came seeking a sign. They wanted some miracle to be done. They wanted him to do something supernatural so that they would be able to then place their faith in him. They came seeking a sign. And in John or Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus looked at those men and he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except one. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That is the one sign Jesus said that I will give you concerning my authority and my ministry. The sign of the resurrection. 
And that's the seal. That's the proof that this gospel, this message that we have, this grace that we have received, how do we know it's real? Because Jesus rose from the dead. There was a great number of soldiers that were securing that tomb. Pilate looked at them and he said, secure it as surely as you can. And so they did. They put or quaternions of soldiers around it, guarding it so that no one could come and steal the body and claim that he rose from the dead. And yet they couldn't produce a body on the third day. He was risen indeed. It tells us that he was seen by 500 people at once and that nobody ever denied it or said that it was a farce or that it was made up. There were countless people that were killed because of their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet none of them ever stepped forward and said, it's a farce. We stole the body. We hid it. This is where you'll find the bones. But every one of those people went to the sword. They went to the grave with the testimony that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And to this day, no one can refute or deny that Jesus Christ rose. And that is the power of this gospel. That is the seal, the authenticity, the authority of the message that we're here hearing tonight. Is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose. And therefore we know it's real. It's authentic. It's sealed and authentic. And then he goes on, Paul, to tell us that it's also life-changing. Verse 5. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. He says, we have received that we, you and I sitting here tonight, Paul doesn't say I am. He doesn't say the select few apostles are, but he says we have received. You and I here tonight are direct beneficiaries of this blessed power. And through this power, we receive three things. He says, grace. Grace. You know what grace is? It's an acronym. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That we have received it. We didn't buy it. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's been freely extended to us, this grace of God. It's been given to us. We have received grace through this. And then he says, we've also received apostleship, that he's given us a calling and a destiny. He's given us direction. He's put our feet in a secure place and he's lit, lighted a way for us to go. And he's shown us where our lives are going. He's given us this direction, this apostleship. And then it says for obedience, that he's also given us power to obey that which for thousands of years, millennia, People tried to do and they couldn't do. And yet by the power of his spirit working in us, he's given us the ability to obey the commands that he's given us. We've received this. This gospel changes lives. How many people here can say amen to that? That's right. He changes us. He gives us the power to do what he calls and commands us to do. It's a life-changing gospel. Nothing else that a person can do can permanently change their life. But this gospel of grace, when someone receives Christ and allows him to begin working in their life, they're changed forever. There's no turning back. A work begins on the inside. The wiring, the way that we think, the way that we operate begins to change. And he renews the mind. He renews the spirit. And he sets us in a steady place. He changes our lives. This powerful gospel. And then finally, he says that this gospel is broad reaching in verse 6. He says, among whom are ye also 
called of Jesus Christ. That they also were called. That what started with 120 people on the day of Pentecost tucked into an upper room with a lock on the door has reverberated and resulted in you and I sitting here tonight receiving the same blessing as those on that day of Pentecost, as those that were recipients of this letter in Rome. You and I are the same beneficiaries of that same blessing, that this gospel is far-reaching, that it's endless. It doesn't ever die. Its ripples never fade into oblivion. Its power and its message never loses its potency. But yet the same thing reaches us and it continues to go. This powerful move, that earthquake, that shaking that shook that room there on the day of Pentecost is still shaking people's lives today. It's a far-reaching thing, this powerful gospel that we have received. So Paul gives to them these five brief introductory elements concerning this gospel. That it is nothing new, first of all. That it is concerning and saturated with Jesus Christ His Son. That it is authentic and sealed by the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it is life-changing and that it is far-reaching. This grand and glorious gospel of which we are the direct beneficiaries of. And then as he goes on from there, he says in verse 7, to all that be in Rome. He's given us his authorship, who he is. He's told us his agenda, which is the gospel. And now his audience, which is to them that are at Rome. Who is he writing to? Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Rome, and we are wrapping up, don't worry, I know you're getting nervous, you're like, you gotta wait. No, we're done, just about. I'm almost ready to call the worship team, you know, almost. Rome, you know, was the capital of the Roman Empire, which was at that time the most powerful and broad-reaching dynasty in the world. They controlled the world, Rome did at that time. And it was the symbol of the Gentile world. That's what it represented. That's what it spoke of. It spoke of the unbelieving Gentile world. And in that symbolism, it includes us as well. Because that's what we are. We are part of the unbelieving world. We are not Jews. We are predominantly, mostly Gentiles. And therefore, this letter is to us too. We are those that are at Rome, outside in a different empire, if you would. He's speaking to us. We know that. We understand that. Now, what's his reason for writing? Read on. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. And then here it is in verse 11. This is why Paul's writing. Why is this here? And I want you to think about this from a spiritual standpoint. Why does God want us to hear these words? Why does God want you, sitting here in your seat tonight, to hear the words that are written here in the book of Romans? Because this is what inspired Paul. This is what was moving upon his heart as he so desired to go to them. And because he couldn't, he decided to write to them. But what was stirring in him? What did he want to see happen in the hearts of the Christians? And what does God want to see happen in our hearts? 
The answer's in verse 11. And then we're finished. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That that's what God wants for us here tonight. He wants us to be established. Tucked right into that word established is the word stable. And that's what that means, to be established. It means to be stable. That God wants to work in our lives in such a way that we experience a stable Christianity. That there be a steadiness to our walk and to our life. To the end that you may be established. There are many here, even tonight, that are constantly struggling with the instability of sin in your life. You waver back and forth because you have these desires and these temptations and these things that are still tugging at you, these worldly pursuits and pleasures that are are vying for your attraction and your attention and your affections. And and there's an instability because on the one hand, you want to serve Christ and live completely for Him. But on the other hand, there's this thing that's pulling you, calling you, holding you, this band that seems to keep you from going after Christ the way that you'd want to. Well, God wants you to be stable. He wants you to be free from those things so that you can serve Him without distraction with your whole life. There are many that struggle with the questions and thoughts within their mind. Does God really love me? Am I really saved? Can I really be certain that the things that I read in the Bible are absolutely true? And there's a wavering. There's there's an instability in the Christianity as these thoughts and struggles weigh upon your mind. You struggle because you are emotionally unstable. It's a constant roller coaster of highs and lows, ups and downs. Well, today God is good and God loves me. But tomorrow, who knows? Today, I don't know. I I don't know if God loves me. Where is God? I can't hear his voice. And it's just a constant up and down of, does he love me? Does he not love me? Is he going to use me? Is he not going to use me? Is he leading me? Is he not leading me? But God wants you to be stable. He wants you to know the stability, the steadfastness of what it is to know and to serve and to walk with him. There are many that struggle with the question, well, what does God require of me? I want to get up each day and do my morning devotions, but I I just don't have the discipline. I don't have the strength. What does he want from me? And frustration can set in, but God wants to replace it with stability, with steadiness in your Christianity. How do I live this Christian life? Well, the first step to being stable as a Christian man or a Christian woman is to understand the gospel that you've believed. And that is what Paul is giving to us as we study the book of Romans. He's giving to us a clear, concise understanding of exactly who God is, what he's done, and what he wants from us in return. And as you understand and give yourself to understanding and knowing God, you will find that there is a stability that comes over you, that enters into your Christianity. And you'll find that you can live the blessed assured and full life in Jesus Christ. So in these next weeks that follow, as we study this great book together, my prayer for you is that God would give to you the stability of Christianity, the strong and steadfast walk that he so desires for you to have, that he intended from the foundation of the world when his plan was formed, that he would walk in human steps, clothed in human flesh, And that he would hang upon a human tree to die for the sins that we deserved. May God fill our hearts with wonder 
as we serve him, as we seek him, as we learn of him. Father, we ask you that you would do this. That as we study this book, Lord, as we hear these words, that it would serve us in such a wonderful way. That we would truly understand and come to conclusion concerning the questions that we so often have. Please help us, Lord. We pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, that you'd fill us with wonder. That you would revive our hearts. That we would experience a reformation of our own, Lord. That as we look at these things and come back to the simplicity of this foundational fact that you loved us so much that you were willing to die. Lord, may we in turn do the same. That we might die, take up our cross and follow you. Lord, please bless this church and fill our hearts as we look more and more to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.